Support for Class Dismissed comes from School Status. School Status helps educators at every level take control of student data for increased outcomes and meaningful stakeholder engagement. Find out more at schoolstatus.com. You are listening to Class Dismissed, episode 203, and I'm your host, Nick Ortigo. This week, a Rhode Island school district built a more reliable pool of substitute teachers. We'll tell you how they did it and why more and more states are changing the law to give students mental health days. Stay with us. Dismissed is the podcast that inspires educators through story. Each week, we cover some of the hottest topics and news in the world of education. Plus, we hear from a guest with a bright idea for education that you can apply in your community. This week, why students become distracted and what you can do about it. Stay with us. Hello, everybody. Nick Ortigo here, and I'm joined by a friend, director of curriculum and instruction, and co-host Christina Pollard. Christina, how are you doing? I am so relaxed. It's been a great holiday weekend indoors. <laughs> yeah, well, indoors, you're right. It's been extremely hot. Uh, we also have to dodge the COVID out and about. So you kind of, you know, lay, try to lay low at least uh, for your Labor Day weekend. Um, last episode, we were talking about, I guess we recorded the day after Hurricane Ida pushed through. Um, I'm feeling for all those kids in the New Orleans area and the greater New Orleans area who, I mean, they're just scattered around the country now, from what I understand. You got them, they're like in Florida, like wherever they have family or friends to stay with, because there's no power for, I guess, a month to Mm -hmm. six weeks. It's quite the challenge they're up against now. Yeah, and and really, in some instances, more than just six weeks, um, there was a huge um, transistor that went into into the water, and so that's a major problem. And it just, it reminds me of Hurricane Katrina, um, where kids were displaced all over the country. We're already seeing um, some of them enroll in our school districts. And that's good because their school districts announced that they were closed um, until further notice. And, you know, that's always hard trying to get kids back in school. And, And you can't do, you can't just say, okay, we'll switch to virtual because you're dealing with teachers who may be displaced as well. So it's a tough situation. Um, we can definitely see that our our, our city um, has visitors. Mm-hmm. I just I just hope that at some point they can um, you know do something for them because it's it's really hot. It is, and um, for anybody, just to give folks a geographic perspective, uh, you and I we live up I fifty nine, the interstate um, from New Orleans, about an hour and a half approximately, depending on what part you're in, and um, we've seen you know, here in, in a couple towns just south of us, see this mass influx of people either coming to stay or at least coming to get supplies. So we've seen uh, an increased demand of people needing gas, cash, mm-hmm. food, you know, generators, whatever it takes to come up here and get and try to go back to your powerless world down around New Orleans. Um, so yeah, it's been, like you said, very noticeable around town and it's been interesting. And, and again, it's like, you know, we, we did Katrina, so we, we know what this is like. Um, but now it's like pandemic and hurricane on top of each other. I would it's think, tough. I would think like if I'm in New Orleans, like the pandemic precautions almost take a back burner because you're just trying to survive in other ways Correct. right now. And, and that's that I worry about as well. So, um, yeah, we'll be keeping um, them in our thoughts and uh, definitely 
uh, keep up to date with how schools are reacting down around that area. Um, a couple interesting stories uh, today. Uh, first, I'm going to start with one out of Illinois, and I learned something that I didn't even know existed was they just changed the law to allow for five mental health days for students in the state of Illinois. And I thought, wow, they must be they must be like the first one to do this. And apparently they're not. There's several other districts and states um, that have the same thing. And that includes Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Illinois, Maine, Nevada, Oregon, and Virginia. They all have passed similar bills allowing for these mental health days. What are your thoughts on that? I guess I'd have a few questions like, did this come about because of the pandemic? And I think it's really cool to be honest, but what did they provide for the teaching staff? That that's a fair question. And I mean, what what is it like, say, in your district, if a teacher just wants to call and say, I need a day off, is there pushback? Is do you have the well, we're gonna need a doctor's excuse? Because that's essentially what what's happening here is these students no longer have to provide I, an excuse. I think generally we we follow policy. I mean, if someone calls in sick, I mean, you know, you can't say no, you come to work. I mean, that's to me is is a bit insensitive and you never know what somebody's going through. What we do, though, is after three days of an illness um, not reporting to work, then we can ask for documentation um, to just make sure that, you know, people aren't just skipping out on work. We, we know how difficult it is to acquire substitutes and um, students, you know, they deserve the best instruction and you can't get that when a teacher is not there. Right. But at the same time, when you say students deserve the best instruction, you can't get that from a teacher that's only 50 percent well. So, you know, you don't want anyone to be, especially now in a pandemic, like you sneeze and I'm saying you need a day off, <laughs> Right? you know, do you need to go get tested? Yep. Um, you know, so it's it's just different now than three or four years ago. You could kind of tell who, you know, called in, needed a day. You could tell how they kind of behaved the day before or the days leading up to it. But now there's just so much going on. It's hard to question and wonder. And you just you just got to be supportive of people. I guess in our state, if I understand it right, money is attached to attendance of the students, um, essentially. Yes. So um, I guess are you is a district hit take a funding hit if a student comes to school um, with an excused absence like you don't. Right. Like that. You don't. I mean, the thing is this in our state, we have what's called the attendance money months, October and November. Your ADA, your average daily attendance is observed and it helps determine your funding for the next year. So generally when September gets here, you start kicking off that attendance um, campaign to try to, you know, improve tardies, improve um, attendance for students. We're already tracking those that are at risk when they get three absences. They're already at risk. Um, So, you know, it does it does hurt. But not even thinking about funding it hurts the child every day that they miss, you know, a lesson, it puts them even further behind. And when you start looking at, you know, equity again, it's, it's even harder for those schools that are high poverty and low performing, but it's but just like can, you can never catch up. Can we agree that sometimes students just need a day off? Like, right. Like in the world, especially with the world we're in today. Absolutely. I could say that. Um, every now and then, yes, a child could just need a day off. You don't know what's going on in the in their world. Um, you know, we know we get a weekend, but what does that really look like for some people? Um, there are children that are raising themselves, raising their siblings, and they never get a break. But that case can be true for teachers, too. Um, you know, we've had plenty of conversations about teacher salaries. 
there are a lot of teachers working more than one job. And so they get off on Friday and you think they're going to rest up for two days. No, they're writing lesson plans, they're grading papers, and they're going to that second job. Right. They're they're running Instacart or DoorDash or, yeah. or whatever yeah. it is so, they need to do for that, that gig work. But so uh, wh- what are your thoughts here? Do you feel like this is too generous? Like students shouldn't be given five days? Is that... When, when I reflect on my, my comments, I guess I am not for it because I keep hinting back to what teachers need. Right. I think I'm kind of looking at like you're giving kids five days free to, to just rest up. And I don't hear anyone talking about <laughs> taking care of teachers. And so I guess it it's not exciting me. I think it's cool that they're you know concerned about children like that. Yeah. But I think I want to hear more about what we're doing for the teaching staff. So I can't necessarily say I'm for that. Yeah. I mean, I feel like everyone should be able to say like, I just, I need a day and I don't need to provide excuse. Also like in today's insurance world, like the fact that you have to have a doctor's excuse. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes you don't want to go pay that copay just because you have a runny nose, you know, and then just so you can get that piece of paper to say, I really went to the doctor. Like, you know, you're fine, but you just need a day to kind of recover a little bit. I don't know. I mean, I, I can't think of a school year where I missed five days of school, my, my entire school career. Like that, that's a lot for me. Um, that means you were really healthy because when I think about my son in first grade, he missed 14 days of school. And you can imagine that impacted me right. as an assistant principal. And he kept that, let me tell you, <laughs> strep throat kept going around that elementary school and it was insane. And it, at a certain point, he had to have his tonsils and adenoids removed. And once he had that procedure, like he rarely missed school again since first grade. But, you know, it happens. To answer your earlier question, like, does this have to do with COVID or not? Like this, this thinking, um, the states that I listed outside of Illinois, all their laws passed within the past two years. So I guess you could argue some of them. Yes, might, definitely. Might pandemic at least had, yeah. And, and maybe some were already on track to do it before. Um, here's a quote from the co-sponsor of the bill out of Illinois. Um, State Representative Barbara Hernandez says, quote, having this now for all students across the state will be really beneficial, especially with what's going on with COVID. Um, and then she goes on to say, many students feel stressed and have developed anxiety and depression because they're not able to see teachers and friends and may have lower grades due to remote learning. So at least in that co-sponsor's mind, yes, this is COVID related. This okay, but, but now it's prompting a question. If they're stressed and dealing with anxiety because of remote learning, so are you saying that they can, they, they're offering them a day off from remote learning? That's a little different. Yeah, no, that's that's a fair that's a fair point. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't say, you know, I mean, without a doubt, mental health is something we need to be concerned about. Five days is a lot. Um, Yeah. And I'm just going to keep going back and saying preparing for remote instruction and delivering it all day is also stressful for teachers. Yeah, that's a fair point. Well, you were kind of talking about, you know, I think having backups for teachers and good quality teachers when, when a teacher needs a day off. Interesting story out of Ed week um, related to the substitute program that they built in a Rhode Island district. So, I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily in a super innovative. I think it's more of taking the time to do this. And I think any district could do this if they want to. And a lot of districts probably do something similar, but this district in Rhode Island built basically a fellowship program. And there's one prerequisite to be part of their fellowship program. And that's, you need to have a college degree. Um, And then they actually interview candidates for their fellowship program. um, And 
see if they seem like they're a good fit. And these fellows mm-hmm. become like their strong pool of substitute teachers. Um, and then they pay them better than what I would call like your typical substitute teacher. So like a fellows can choose between a current per diem pay of $225, or you can take a $195 plan, which includes like health insurance benefits. Um, so it's kind of like a, a substitute pool on steroids. And you have to also sign, if you're going to do this program, a year contract. So basically like, this isn't like just, you know, here and there, I'm kind of doing this. I'm kind of a substitute teacher when they call me, you know, like you are a committed substitute teacher, but the program has been very successful for this district. And they've seen, you know, quite the increase in, in their pool of teachers. And they only need to call on, I think like 10 to 15, what I would call regular substitutes to fill small mm-hmm. holes at a time. What, what are your thoughts with, with this idea as I'm kind of telling you this? I think it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if everyone could replicate that. When I, I think about our area and the, you know, there's a teacher shortage, right? And so right. we know how hard it is to fill teaching positions. Well, the, the issue with subs is kind of the same thing. And because of that sh- shortage, subs can really decide where they want to serve. See, and that's something that um, in larger districts, they cover much more of a geographical area. And so like, like when I think about our district and how many school districts are sort of sitting on top of each other, subs can really ch- pick and choose where they want to serve. And that's what makes it difficult. Um, so trying to replicate that, I don't know. I think it, it would be hard for I, I some districts. The example in this particular article, they kind of open up with this um, student coming out of college who... Uh, just got their degree, but didn't really like know or couldn't really find the job for their degree at the moment. So they applied mm-hmm. to this program and the pay. I mean, when you, when you do the math, if you teach four weeks, five days a week in a month, you're going to make with the the higher of the two pays without the benefits, you'll make $4,500 in a month, which, which isn't nothing. Wow. Is that right? So and then so then it makes me ask, what are they paying their teachers up there? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and, and that's if you were to work every day. But I mean, I, typically, there's some subs that probably do work every day. I mean, you probably know better mm-hmm. than I do. Um, there so, are. So, it, and they also provide better training for this this group. They have like four days of training before the school year starts. And there's, there's training along the way. Um, that but, is clever. But I guess I kind of wonder... Like, all right, so where does the money come from, right? If you can only pay your subs this much, how are they paying these subs more? And then I started thinking, like, could ESSER funds be used for subs at, at this point? Like, I mean, you would think it's a legitimate reason. Like, you're, it's a pandemic issue in a way, the, the lack of teachers and, and so forth. I don't know. I don't know that fact, but I will say that you can use ESSER funds for learning loss. And so if you hire learning loss teachers or learning loss coordinators, you could make that work. I don't know if you could you could actually do that for substitutes because they're not licensed. So how can they truly make an impact on learning loss? Yeah, that, that that's true. Um, in this article, one quote says um, from the district says, in our first year, we thought we'd get 28 or so applicants. We got over 80. It blew us away. Um, and, wow. And it says, well, the pay is phenomenal. Right. It says that first year, the district hired 15 of the 80 applicants. It was a solid start to the residency like fellowship, um, which since inception has provided the school district with a steady influx of well credentialed long term substitute teachers who in turn are guaranteed a well paying job training and support and a pathway into the field of education. Because I think it would also act as somewhat of a recruitment tool, too. It's like, yeah, I went for well, this that's marketing exactly degree. Where- 
Yeah. yeah, that's exactly where my mind was going, is that if they have an, a pool of 80 people uh, credentialed, you know, degree holding, uh, interested in subbing, what we need to do is work on an alternate route to a certification program and get those people into permanent positions. Right. So I'm going to link this article in the show notes. I feel like, like you said, you know, it's easy to be like, oh, that's all they did. But, you know, it takes it's hard to sometimes execute. Yeah, different but projects. if it's well thought out right. and in their area where they live, they have a pool. I think it's fantastic. Yep. So uh, anyhow, if anybody wants to learn more about that and or even reach out to the district, it is uh, Central Falls, Rhode Island School District. So I will, uh, again, have okay. that in the show notes. Uh, Christina, are you ready for today's bright idea? I am hyped about it. Our guest in today's Bright Idea segment is here to help us better understand why our students are distracted, and he'll also give us some real-world tips on how we can make some adjustments to keep students focused. Jim Lang is a professor of English at Assumption University, and he's also the author of six educational-related books, the most recent of which is Distracted, Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It. He's also a two-time guest on Class Dismissed. Jim, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. This is exciting because I think this is a topic that is probably on the minds of millions of teachers around the world, and it has to do with how we keep our kids focused. I think when a lot of people hear the title of your book, Distracted, Why Students Can't Focus, and What You Can Do About It, their mind immediately goes to technology and iPhones and social media being the problem. But as you read the book and you open it up just right out the gate, you kind of flip that on its head and say that obvious correlation between technology and attention span uh, really may not be the problem, I guess. Yeah, so what what happens when we look back at sort of historically at people talking about their abilities to pay attention, we find right from the beginning of the historical record that people have been concerned about this, that they have um, not been able to pay as a, attention as closely as they would like, and that they feel distracted. Um, so we can, you know, have, I have quotes in the book from Aristotle, from, from Augustine, from, uh, you know, poets and writers and thinkers, right down from, you know, ancient, from antiquity to the present day. So, People have been concerned about this issue for a long time, and it seems like, you know, it's a sort of a basic sort of biological um, sort of feature of our brain that we are drawn to novelty in our environment. We are kind of, you know, frequently scanning our environment, um, seeking out new and interesting things, and that sort of tendency is what leads it, uh, us into distractions. Now, what I do like to tell people is, it's not that somehow our brains have changed because um, that's something that happens over many generations. What's happened is that our technologies today have gotten very good at playing on our distractible brains. So we've always had distractible brains. Um, and in fact, if you think even sort of further back than like, you know, when we've been writing and talking about our brains to like early humans, that was a very adaptive thing for us, right? So it helped to be able to focus on something, but it also helped to be really aware of what else was going around you and to to notice things and to, and to be curious and to look out for new things. That was adaptive for us as a species uh, in our evolution. But then, um, you know, so, so th that's built into us, but our technologies now are really good at playing on that part of our brain. So your phone is like an endless source of novelty and your brain loves that. You know, you can look at your email on your phone. Then when that's done, you can look at Twitter. Then from there, you can go to Instagram. Then you can check the weather. Then you can get directions to the next place you're going. And by the time that's all done, you have new email, right? So like it's an endless source of novelty mm -hmm. and our brains like that. Um, and we haven't had that kind of accessibility to sort of novelty and new information so quickly and so easily before. So that is a difference. So I don't, you know, I, I like people to understand 
the sort of the base problem is one we've always had. The the new thing that we're facing is that the technologies are um, are more challenging for us right now. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I think most of us probably know that like, Facebook, Instagram is the TikTok people of the world. They probably have psychologists and sociologists working for them to to make their product addictive, right? I mean, it's I, a multi it's a multi billion dollar industry. And in fact, one of the authors that I look at in the book is um, was a video game designer who wrote a book called Hooked, in which he was sort of you know talking to companies about how to hook people into your apps and devices. And what's really striking about the book is how well versed he is in the research. Like he knows his uh, brain biology and his cognitive psychology. And so they're using those strategies in order to, um, you know, keep our attention in our devices. Um, and, you know, and so we're, we, we are kind of fighting against a, a very challenging problem. And like you said, this has been a problem for hundreds of years, but I think a lot of teachers out there are thinking, well, one way to to keep the Facebooks and, and the phones out of the the distracted minds of my students is just to ban them from the classroom. But I guess your opinion is that's not necessarily the solution. No, there's a couple of problems with that solution. The first is just sort of an obvious one. Like, you know, we all are in interacting with our devices and technologies on a regular basis every day. There are very few professions um, that we'll be preparing students for, um, especially in, in higher education, that students won't be interacting with their technologies all the time. So to create this kind of artificial bubble for learning where we're not having them have access to their technologies, I don't I don't think that's the right solution. The other thing is, of course, we have students who need technology for accessibility purposes. Um, and we don't want to like make it a, an environment which, you know, technology is banned, except for these students who need it um, for accessibility purposes, because then everyone can see right away who are the students that need, you know, that have um, might have a learning disability. So I think we my argument is that the use of technology in the classroom should be context specific. There are times when we want to be able to have students access their technology, and maybe that's most of the time, but we want to think through why. And, and there are also going to be times when we don't have anyone using technology. So I teach literature and writing, and there are good times when I want my students to just, you know, circle up their desks and we're going to talk about what this poem means. No one needs technology at that moment. So rather than have a kind of blanket attitude towards it, either anything goes or there's no technology in my classroom, I think we can do better than that. We, we can think more carefully than that about when is technology appropriate to have in the classroom and when is it not, uh, and then have that kind of guide our thinking on this issue. I'm going to paraphrase kind of something that I picked up on in the book. Um, and it seems like so an educator needs to not so much worry about preventing distractions and they need to think more about cultivating attention. Does is that, do I have exactly. that, right? that is the most fundamental argument I make in the book that, you know, we cannot eliminate distractions from our lives or the lives of our students or the classroom. Distractions have always been present in the classroom. Uh, in the form of, you know, other previous things, people can doodle, they can look out the window, th th all that's been available. And the other thing is, of course, even if you eliminate all the distractions from the environment, there's still distractions in your head, right? Like, so, you know, you, you can be distracted by thinking about other things that are going on in your life, or like in a global pandemic, <laughs> worrying about your health. And, you know, um, so, so the, there's no way to eliminate distractions. What we can do, though, is to think about when do people pay attention? What cultivates people's attention and how can I maximize those behaviors or those features of the environment to create a, like a space? I like to think about it almost as a retreat 
like a retreat from all the kind of distractions that you're you're that are swirling around you all the time and to say okay when we come into this space together we're going to use our attention uh, to learn and we're going to give the gift of our attention to one another and so this is a space where we try we do our best to try to cultivate and support attention and we know that's good for learning and we also know that's good for people's well-being um, you know, to, to be fully absorbed in, a, in, a, in an activity that you find interesting and engaging, um, that's a really good thing for us, sort of, you know, our mental health as well. So so I really think that if, if we can make the classroom a place where we make attention a priority, um, we are doing the best possible thing for our students, both for their learning and for their their overall sense of well-being. And I also, I think, picked up on the fact that you you argue that educators need to accept that attention is an achievement. It's an accomplishment. It's not the norm. Like we shouldn't assume that everybody can just have an attention span. Exactly. I think people tend to think about attention is the norm and distraction is like the falling away from that norm. But I think the research shows us that the opposite is true. Distraction is like the ocean that we're always swimming in. And our attention are like, you know, the islands that rise out of that ocean when the circumstances are right. And so that means the job of the teacher is to create those circumstances. So if we think about the fact that attention is an achievement rather than something we just take for granted, then clearly there's a role for the teacher as, a you know, we help students learn. So we also are trying to help them uh, cultivate and support and sustain their attention. So we need to think about how the environments that we create for students have been specifically designed in order to help students achieve attention. As you researched this book, you, I guess, visited a lot of classrooms and you watched what grabbed students' attention. Um, I'm sure that's lots of things, but um, like, what did you see that worked as you kind of went from classroom to classroom? So we'll go from the sort of very simple to the more complex kinds of ideas. The very two very simple things for me, which are just sort of easy practices that any teacher can engage in. The first is the use of student names. Um, you know, our names have tremendous power to grab our attention. And, um, you know, that's been demonstrated in a lot of research all the way down to infants, actually. Even infants uh, as young as six months old, uh, you know, they perk to life when they their, bra- they, their brains actually show increased activity when they hear even like um, words that sound like their names or like have syllables as part of, that are part of their names. So, and, and, I, and, I, and I, as a teacher, I've had many, many experiences of, you know, having a student that looked like they were drifting off and I, you know, said their name and that student sort of mm-hmm. jumps back into the classroom, right? So, so regularly using student names in the classroom, uh, that's an easy thing to do. And then the second thing to do, this is a little bit challenging maybe right now during COVID, but as we go forward, um, using your physical presence. So, you know, many teachers stand behind like an invisible barrier at the front of the room. Mm-hmm. And, the, and and what I observed sitting in the back of classrooms was it was the students in the back of the room who are most likely to be distracted, right? So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, one of the lowest hanging fruits of, of helping cultivate attention is just getting out into that space, uh, moving around the room, uh, using your presence to invite students into the conversation, not to like menace or loom over them, but to say, you know, um, hey, hey, you know, I'd, I'd like you to join the conversation. And so walking over to that student and, and inviting them into the conversation. So so the name and the physical presence together can be really powerful ways um, to keep people engaged in the classroom. I want to piggyback on that. You you talk about, um, I think it was, her name was Stephanie Yule and how she mm-hmm. builds a community in the classroom. Can you dive into that? 
She actually makes names a very strong priority in her classroom, not only for her, her to know the students' names, but for the students to know each other's names. So when I observed her classroom, she's a historian at the College of the Holy Cross. Um, she has her students, you know, memorize the names of everyone else in the room so that as they're talking, they can use one another's names as well. That's cool. So on this day, on this day that I observed her, there was a new student coming into class and every student spoke their name and then the student had to get up and try to say them all again, um, which was just sort of a little, you know, it was kind of like a fun, everyone was laughing about it. But but it but it, it communicated to the students that it's really important that we know it and use each other's names in here, um, and so you know there are ways that we can make that a priority. Even in large classes, um, there's some research that shows that when students, if you can't memorize all the names, have students put out name placards uh, and and just call them by name as you are inviting them into the discussion, and that too can have a similar positive effect. Uh, another thing I think um, that you kind of have as a tip is using the effectiveness of curiosity. Um, can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that we know drives people's attention is when they are curious about something and want to find out the answers or find out more information about it themselves. So oftentimes in school, you know, we come in and say, okay, here's, here's information for you. Um, or here's, you know, a, a psychologist whose work I like, Dan Willingham says, you know, most of the things that we teach in school, uh, we teach because we've discovered that there are answers to big questions that we have, or they help us solve problems that we need to solve. But we often just come in and say, okay, I've got an answer for you, or I've got a solution. And the students saying, you know, I didn't ask a question, <laughs> right? So like the first thing we need to do is actually cultivate the curiosity of students by showing them the questions and getting them interested in the questions. Uh, once we've got their attention with the questions and they're like, huh, I wonder how that works. Or like, why did that happen? then we've captured their attention and now we can then provide them with the content that is going to help them come up with their own answer. Okay. So, so for this, I want to actually like, let's do this with a, a real world example, if we will, because I think you refer to what you call boxes of content and that being bad. And then you, maybe we can give a, a good example. So could you like present something to me in a boring boxes of content way and then present it to me in the way of a question that creates curiosity? Yeah, so I did this through for all my course syllabi, and I try to really make this something that is a priority in the first days and weeks of the semester. So I teach a class, um, uh, a seminar on contemporary British literature, right? So like, um, the way I used to describe that class was, this is a class on contemporary British literature, we're going to focus on the following themes, uh, and you'll read the following text. And like, that's basically what my course description was. But when I really started to think through this issue of, um, you know, what's the deeper question that we're trying to ask and answer here, I rewrote that opening paragraph to my syllabus to say, um, and especially in the past few years, I've been able to say, look, um, you know, in 2016, something really shocking happened. The, the British um, people voted to leave the European Union. Um, they wanted to reclaim their national identity. Um, and, and it was, you know, this incredibly strange and, and um, thing that happened to, uh, in, in a in the global political world. Um, and so we're going to, th and, and, and the reason, one of the reasons that people argued they did that is what they wanted to reclaim their national identity. What did it mean to be British? Uh, and that's a really fascinating question. What does yeah. it mean to be British? What does it mean to be American? So in this class, we're going to read some stuff that's going to help us think through what does it mean to have a national identity and why do we care about it? Uh, why do we care about being an American or being a, a British person? So what does that mean? So that's now how the whole course starts. And we, we I try to make that question as interesting as possible to them. And then 
okay, here's what we're going to read and here's what we're going to think about in order to help you come up with your own answers. Uh, to that. I love that. I mean, you you totally made British literature interesting for me by phrasing it that way. <laughs> so that, that's cool. Now, and then I guess, so like that's presenting it as, you know, here's what we're going to do in the class. And then you kind of encourage educators to, to think about that on a daily basis, right? Like every day kind of present a question, like here's what we're doing today, but present it as a question. Yeah, you can you can open any, you know, any part of the learning experience can be opened with a question can be, you know, in, in, in starting with, say, a problem or an interest, like even people can think about case studies or like, interesting problems that have arisen in like the history of their discipline. Um, doesn't always have to be a question, it can be a problem or, you know, a case or a challenge or something like that. But something just to recognize, in order to start, we got to get people's interest. We have to get them curious. We have to get their attention. And then we can start moving through the content. All right. We're not going to dive into every single um, category, or I guess you call them solution um, practice for an educator, but let's just kind of tease everybody with the other strategies. Like you have structured attention, right? Yeah. So one? structured attention by what I mean. And what I mean by that is essentially just thinking about how do you cultivate the attention of someone in an experience that unfolds over time? One thing we know about attention is that it, it fatigues over time. So to get back to your earlier point, attention is an achievement. It requires effort. Anything that requires effort, right, is gradually going to sort of wear us down. So it becomes, and we all know this from experience, right? If you go to a, a, like a lecture or something, you know, it's easier to pay attention in the first five minutes than it is in the last five minutes mm -hmm. um, because your attention fatigues. So you need to think about how are you keeping someone's attention um, sort of sustained over the course of a long period of time. And I'll just to give one example, um, one of the easiest ways to do this, as far as I'm concerned, is to just let the learner know how is this experience going to unfold? What's the plan for the day? Um, if you think about when you go to a lecture or you listen to a sermon or something like that, and someone gets up and just starts talking and you're not really sure how long it's going to go and they're not very good about making like the, you know, the clear points and reminding you about where you are, it's very easy to drift off in that situation. And you start thinking about how much longer is this going to go on? What's the main idea again, right? And then you start thinking about other things, as opposed to a lecturer who says something like, okay, I've got four points I'm going to make here. It's going to take 40 minutes. Um, and then, you know, stops every once in a while and says, okay, that's, that's the end of point one. Now let's do point two. Or a teacher that says, we're going to do four things in class today. They're right up here on the board. We've just finished the second one. Now we're right. Like that's easy um, structure, making the structure visible and signposting throughout. That's really helpful for people's attention. So, um, you know, in the book, I go into a lot more about like, so what should that structure look like? But I think that's one of the easiest things you can do is just make it visible and signpost. There, there are so many practical things in this book. Um, and I'll just kind of list off a couple of the other categories, but it's like you have signature attention, assessed attention, mindful attention. Um, I know you open up the book and you're kind of like, I wrote this, I think specifically, like it applies to college professors, but it also is applicable in the, the high school and the middle school setting as well. Um, but I could make an argument that anybody who has to demand a group's attention has takeaways in this book, whether you're a salesperson or a preacher or, or whatever. I mean, am I wrong? No, I hope so. I think that's true. Definitely. I mean, what I tried to do is the, the whole approach I took to the book was, um, to, as my starting point was, 
just to sort of look around and say, like, where do people pay attention? And that came from all walks of life, right? So I was kind of looking at where do where do I see attention happening? And so I think absolutely that all fed into the book and the recommendations. And then I hope those recommendations can feed back out into some of those other contexts as well. Well, again, the book is called Distracted, Why Students Can't Focus and What You Can Do About It. It's available where books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, great reviews online as well. And uh, you can learn more uh, about it as well by going to James uh mlang.com that's correct right on the uh yes URL? that's correct all right well jim thank you again so much for taking the time to join us on class dismissed all right and thanks to listeners for their attention throughout this episode <laughs> that's gonna do it for this episode of class dismissed if you want to send us an idea or comment remember you can always email us at info at class podcast.com or tweet us at class dismiss We're here to support educators, but we need your support as well. So please subscribe to the show. And we'd also appreciate it if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes. On behalf of all the good people working at School Status and Christina, representing all those educators out there, thank you for listening. I'm Nick Ortigo, and I'll talk with you next week. Class dismissed.